the association we're seeing between these fact-like and preference-like statements in this theory of mind network activity is something more to do with the predictability of the statements and less to do with the fact that they just happen to be objective or subjective. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. Today in episode 80 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Jordan Terrio from Northeastern University about his research into a set of brain regions that, when activated by a variety of social tasks, can give us insights into how we judge the moral objectivity, or subjectivity, of unexpected claims other people make. Here's Jordan Terrio. Hi, I'm Jordan Terrio. I'm a postdoc in psychology at Northeastern University. I grew up in Nova Scotia in Canada, so for Americans just across from Maine. And basically arrived at psychology through, I think, a series of sort of accidents or jumping onto topics that I just happened to find interesting. My parents end up poking me and, you know, making fun of me because I'd called home and said I'm majoring in psychology and has nothing to do with my dad, who was a psychiatrist. But after that, I applied to graduate school, read a bunch about moral psychology, uh, applied to several places, got in at Boston College. I was super thrilled to start that up. And around then, I'd been reading in the later years of that work about predictive coding and some of these other ways of thinking about brain function. So part of what sort of came about through graduate school was getting more dissatisfied with some of these what you call like blobology or brain blob approaches to studying the brain, uh, which is just looking for areas of localization of function and saying there's a specific function to specific areas. And in the interest of those predictive coding models, I started looking around a little bit more to see who was working on that. Now, there actually weren't a lot of people at the time in North America working on it, but my advisor for my postdoc now, Lisa Feldman Barrett, was one of the few. And so I'd reached out to her and then got involved in. Uh, trying to to learn more about those and integrate in uh, a range of other sort of approaches uh, like constructivism. So thinking about how sort of elements of experience come together and sort of create emergent properties, uh, how we sort of draw a boundary around certain categories like fat morals or preferences and treat those as a singular thing. And so that's the sort of direction that I've gone to now. But at the same time, I'm I'm really interested in moral behavior, moral psychology, really basic properties of how people interact or make themselves predictable to others help create a sort of normative motivation to follow rules or social expectations. Jordan and his colleagues' paper concerns the network of brain regions related to theory of mind, our ability to attribute mental states to ourselves and to predict those of others. Research into theory of mind among both humans and animals has grown rapidly in the 40 plus years since the publication of the paper, Does the Chimpanzee Have a Theory of Mind? As his study examined the role that the brain's theory of mind networks have on our perspective on how objective or subjective moral judgments are, we started our conversation by asking Jordan to explain the utility of studying prediction in moral psychology. If the brain is predictive, when something unexpected happens, uh, your brain is going to have to process that. And there's a metabolic cost attached to it uh, because you're going to have to actually transmit the information in the brain, and that's expensive. So... The idea that we had is that what people do is regulate the predictability of their social environment by being predictable to other people. If I'm in a crowded space, most of my environment around me is social. It's other people or you know, it's animals that have brains that are making predictions. 
And if I'm suddenly doing something that's very unpredictable to them, if I'm hitting the gas and metaphorically accelerating and making myself something that's like very obvious to them that they need to react to, then they might do that unpredictably. And so a strategy for controlling the predictability and the metabolic cost of an environment is to figure out what it is that people expect and then do it. And that's not all that you do uh, because certain times you want to violate people's expectations, but it's a pretty useful default because most of the time it's easier to sort of get along, get by and fly under the radar. The point where that comes into being relevant to theory of mind is that you need to be able to figure out what it is that people expect you to do in the first place. And the whole problem is that you don't have direct access to other people's minds. You don't know specifically what it is that they expect of you. You can use some things to help you with that. So you can use your prior experience with a particular person. You can use your prior experience in a certain situation. But ultimately, that still relies on you having something to work with, of having at some point figured out what it is that people expected of you in previous times. So you make a guess of what it is that other people expect. You enact a behavior that you think is going to be predictable to other people. You try to fly under their radar. And then if they are still reacting to that, and if it's still unpredictable to them, then you know that you didn't get it right. And you know you need to adjust it and try again. And so the idea is that you need to do this iterative process of guessing, trying to conform to people's expectations, assessing their reaction, and using that to bootstrap up a better and better understanding of what it is that other people expect. If the brain does leverage predictions in order to guide our behavior, then exploring patterns in the firing of synapses within the brain while we interact with others could provide valuable evidence of how this happens. Next, Jordan explains what theory of mind is, as well as the regions of the brain which help us implement it to understand the beliefs, intents, desires, emotions, or knowledge of both ourselves and others. When you interact with other people, you actually don't have any direct evidence that they have internal beliefs or thoughts or preferences or internal mental states. You're interacting with people and you make an inference that they have the same sorts of internal thoughts and internal mental life as you. So theory of mind is essentially, do you have a theory of other people's minds? Do you have a theory that other people have these internal mental states that you do? And so the theory of mind network is a network of brain regions that have been pretty consistently studied, are pretty active during social tasks, thinking about what other people are thinking, watching social videos, reading stories, thinking about situations that involve people's beliefs rather than things like pictures or physical objects. So this network has been really consistently activated by mental state information, specifically the right temporal parietal junction left temporal parietal junction, precuneus, and then dorsal and ventral medial prefrontal cortex. And of those, the right temporal parietal junction tends to get the most attention from theory of mind people. And these regions tend to be activated. But what I should say is that we begin the whole study by basically pointing out that these regions that are active for theory of mind are also active for a whole lot of other social things. So they're activated when people read stories, uh, about beliefs. They're active when people read about moral violations. They're active when people watch uh, social animations. Uh, they're active when people take others' perspectives, uh, when they do strategic thinking in economic games, when they form impressions of people, uh, or even just when they listen to narratives. These same regions tend to be showing similar activity across people when they're reading the same narrative. So 
the question was whether these are regions that are just involved in this process of making the jump to understanding other people's internal mental states, theory of mind. And we wanted to sort of follow up an idea that this region is actually doing something a bit more general. And so it's doing something a bit more general in that it makes social predictions, predicts the sorts of things that people would be likely to believe. The idea that it might be active when there's some social prediction error, so when something happens that's unexpected, and specifically socially unexpected. More specifically, Jordan and his co-authors were interested in the consistency of brain activity when people are presented with moral statements for which their predictability and social consensus are uncertain. To test this, they used data obtained from functional MRI imaging. Brian and I were eager to learn more about the stimulus that were used in these imaging studies. So we used some data that we had uh, that we'd used in a previous study. And what we did was we had a series of moral statements, fact statements, and preference statements. Uh, and so people just read the statements in the scanner. They'd rate their agreement. But otherwise, they were just told to rate these and say whether they agree with them and how much. So simple statements like, it's unethical for businesses to promote sugary products to children might be a moral one. Something like, airplanes have wings that enable the plane to lift upward or something like going through airport security is an unpleasant experience. So people read these morals, these facts, and these preferences, and there's some variability within them. So uh, some of them were ones that everyone would agree with. Some of them were ones that no one would agree with. Some of them were ones that were sort of in between. Uh, so in study one, an independent sample read these statements and then rated each of them on how much they're about facts, about morals, and about preferences. And this let us do a couple of things. It let us validate the measures that we'd run in the first place and make sure that the facts are really being rated as facts, the morals are really rated as morals, and the preferences are really rated as preferences. What it also did is let us get some variability within those categories. So within morals, especially, some statements would be seen as more about facts, some as less about facts, some as more about preferences, some as less about preferences. And what we did is we took a look at that variability and how it related to activity in um, this theory of mind network. With the logic being that statements that are very fact-like are statements that are essentially people are saying, this is something that everyone believes. This is something that you would, you would expect it to be fact-like a consistent thing that everyone would agree upon. And what we end up finding is that within this theory of mind network, moral statements that were seen as more fact-like actually elicited less activity. And moral statements that were more preference-like and less fact-like elicited more activity. And one thing that's interesting, right, is that that's a difficult association to interpret if you just want to look at the face value of the measure that we're using. Like, it would be very weird for there to be a brain region for assessing moral objectivity or assessing moral subjectivity. That seems like, even if you want to do a stick to a hard sort of module story of what's going on in the brain, that would seem like a hard sell, that there'd be something specifically evolutionarily selected for to have a brain region that does that specific meta-ethical judgment. So what we took to be maybe a more consistent explanation is one in line with these, this idea of uh, the brain being predictive, the brain issuing predictions about social information, and the brain making predictions about what sort of beliefs you know any person that you encounter is going to have. And so the idea is that when you encounter a moral belief that is completely consistent with what you would expect anyone to say, so you know, if you encounter someone who says, I think slavery is really bad, the idea is there's not so much information there because they're essentially saying something that you would have assumed or predicted that they believe already versus, you know, if they give you a moral claim like, you know, I think it's absolutely wrong to harm cockroaches. You just, you, you can't do it. It's completely unethical. Then that would be something 
that's not so much what most people, what you'd expect most people to have, and it's a moral belief that goes against that prediction. And so the idea is that the association we're seeing between these fact-like and preference-like statements in this theory of mind network activity is something more to do with the predictability of the statements and less to do with the fact that they just happen to be objective or subjective. Meta-ethical judgments are judgments about what kind of information a moral statement conveys. For example, whether it's objective in the sense of being more fact-like and thus preference-like, or subjective, more preference-like and thus fact-like. The moral statements used in their study were chosen since participants couldn't always easily predict if they'd be endorsed by others. And in a moral context, meta-ethical judgments act as a proxy for this predictability, as Jordan describes after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Altmetric. At Altmetric, we help researchers track and analyze the online activity around scholarly research outputs. And if you like passing science, you may also enjoy our podcast series, The Altmetric Podcast. Join me, Lucy Goodchild, as we explore the science stories that are being discussed the most online so you can find out why. You can find our show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Now, back to Passing Science. Here again is Jordan Terrio. So meta-ethical judgment is a term that philosophers use to talk about a sort of second-level judgment that you'd make about morality. So rather than saying whether any particular thing is right or wrong, a meta-ethical judgment would be to say whether morals are the type of thing that you can be right or wrong about, or whether they're more about your personal judgment, your subjective sense. So two extremes might be moral objectivism uh, or sort of moral realism, where morals are real things. They're like facts of the universe. And then another would be subjectivism or relativism. So subjectivism being morality is really just a matter of personal opinion. Relativism being there's no true facts about morality. It's a sort of cultural consensus. And so no culture can be wrong about morals. There just happens to be different consensuses. Philosophers assumed that people would have some meta-ethical position that was consistent. They thought that most people would be moral objectivists, and most people would think that morals are like facts. But psychologists and uh, experimental philosophers have been finding that if you really probe people, people are not at all consistent, which may be not surprising to some listeners. People will say that you know some morals are more objective, they're more like a fact. They'll say some others are more subjective, they're more like a preference. And they won't tend to have a sort of consistent meta-ethical position where they'll say that if something's moral, then by definition, it's like a fact, or by definition, it's like a preference, it's subjective. It tends to be variable across items. So if you give something that there's a social consensus on, like slavery is wrong, then people will tend to say it's like a fact. And if you give people something that there's not really a social consensus on, then they'll tend to say it's something more like a preference. Morals are inherently complex concepts, packing a lot more punch than we might realize at first glance. Though participants in their study were presented with statements that were either more fact-like or more preference-like, Jordan and his colleagues knew that people react differently to individual statements in these categories, and so they wanted to exploit this variation, as he describes next. So there's subcategories within morals, right? And so we have a design where we have 24 morals, 24 facts, 24 preferences, And then we have subpopulations within those morals and facts and preferences. Some of them are ones that everyone would agree with, so positive consensus. Some are ones that almost everyone would disagree with, negative consensus. And some of them are no consensus where people are not going to agree or disagree strongly with them. But within even negative consensus morals, 
there is a variety of them, right? So there might be something like uh, it's wrong to use animals as disposable space shuttle test pilots. It's wrong to knowingly buy sandals made using sweatshop labor. You know, you might say people should help their elderly neighbors clear snow from their driveway. And the thing is, right, is that even though those are all within the same sort of category that we've assigned them to, the category is a construction. The category is not a real thing. It's an assignment. And each one of those different statements is going to get a different reaction out of people, even if they're all roughly the same on some way that we, we've assigned them to. So the fact is, is that if you want to do an item analysis in the sense that we're talking about, what you do is you you admit that these are all very different statements, even within a category that you've sort of grouped them into. And you try to look at how that variability is related to something of interest. Before reading Jordan's paper, Doug and I were familiar with item analysis, a procedure used in the development of scales, such as tests and questionnaires. We weren't familiar with the application of the term in the context of functional magnetic resonance imaging, as Jordan and his colleagues applied item analysis to the fMRI data in their study, we asked him to expand on the similarities and differences between the two meanings of the term. So item analysis here would just mean doing a correlation across stimuli with an average for each stimuli. So maybe a good way is to contrast it with the sort of item analysis for developing a scale. In that case, what you're planning to do is you're trying to find the items that hang together so that you can average them and then use that average as maybe an individual difference measure or something else, right? But in this case here, what you're doing is you're treating the variance as real. So we have 24 moral stimuli here, but they're all completely different. And so the response to each of them is going to be different. And although you might be interested in morals as a category and you could average across them, and maybe among our 24 morals, we could do some item analysis to see item analysis in the sense that we develop a scale and we see which of them hang together and are good and emblematic of a category of morals, right? But the other thing to do is to say that maybe a category of morals isn't something that really exists. And what you want to do is look at variability among these particular items that have been tagged or you know assigned to a moral category, but each of them is a different thing and is going to elicit different activity or have some different feature that might be associated with neural activity. Given that there are approximately 86 billion neurons in the human brain, Ryan and I were interested in learning how cognitive neuropsychologists know where to look for relationships between regions of brain activation and complex psychological behaviors, like those expressed in theory of mind research. There's sort of a long history in MRI of issues with how you pick a brain region to investigate further. There was a big sort of blow up probably a decade ago. If you look up voodoo correlations, uh, you'll find it. What people would do is they'd do some contrast. So they'd be interested in, let's say, like angry posing faces versus fear posing faces. So you'd contrast two conditions. And then let's say that that lights up a brain region or that contrast shows that a certain brain region is showing significantly more activity for one of these conditions than the other. Now you take that area that you've seen shows a significant difference and you take the estimates for each individual person and you see how those correlate with some other individual differences feature, let's say. So there's a problem there that what you've done is you've used the statistical significance of the first test to threshold and pick the region that you're going to test in the second. And what that tends to do is it biases the variability or it biases the regions that you're going to be looking at. You're being sort of led by significance to pick a particular region, which is really biasing you. So what the functional localizer approach does instead is it uses some independent task 
that will identify brain regions that you're interested in studying more based on activation. But then you take that area that was activated in the one task, the independent task, and then you look in a second task and examine activity within it there. So rather than essentially double dipping into the same data where you've found a region that shows a significant difference, and then you try to see within that significantly different region how something else changes, you use one independent test in a separate scan to sort of identify the region. And then in this study you're actually interested in, you look at activity within that region that you've now identified. And one of the other reasons why this is useful too, right, is that you can generate a standardized localizer that different people can use that they can identify um, regions that are active within individual participants, and then across studies, be sure that they're looking at the same region across people. So we're using the exact same task that lots of other people have used in the past, and so we can be reasonably confident that we're using the same process to localize regions to pick out a particular area to be looking at, hopefully making our results comparable with other studies that have used the same method. In their research, Jordan and his colleagues had multiple data points from each participant, and those data were necessarily correlated with one another because they were obtained from the same participant. Therefore, they used a procedure called mixed effects analysis, a statistical approach for systematically accounting both for variability within each participant's data, as well as the variability across the categories of morals, facts, and preferences. Up next, Jordan tells us more about how this statistical approach works. When people want to compare a category, they want to compare, in our case, morals to preferences. The issue is that you need to pick which morals are you going to use and which preferences are you going to use to make up the category. And it's the exact same problem if you were to use like faces posing anger, faces posing fear. You need to pick a certain set of them and you can only run so many. So it's kind of the same problem as you only are going to collect so many participants. You need to generalize past the 10, 20 subjects that you can collect. And so part of what we did as well is we used a mixed effects model, which allows us to um, control for the fact that every single person is going to show a slightly different response, but also every single item is going to show a slightly different response too. So when we want to compare categories like morals and preferences, we want to make sure that we're actually comparing the category and not the specific 24 items that have made up that category which is actually an enormous problem in social psychology because most often what people will do is they'll average across the items that they've picked to represent a certain category. But what people should know is that when you do that, the actual generalization that you're making, the actual result you can say that you've demonstrated with a statistical test is that only those specific 10, 12, 24 items in that one category are different than the specific 10, 12, 24 items in the other category. You can't say anything about any items that you haven't tested beyond that. And using mixed effects analyses are a way of allowing you to incorporate some of that uncertainty that's inherent across the items and be able to make an actual generalization at a category level. That most signals have some degree of predictability and some degree of noise has been well known for some time. But it wasn't until 1948 that Claude Shannon now referred to as the father of information theory, proposed in his mathematical theory of communication that a perfectly predictable signal carries no information. As Jordan makes mention of this counterintuitive fact in his article, we asked him to discuss why so-called error is really variation, and therefore it's also information. So the idea that unpredictable signals are what is actually information 
and that a signal that's perfectly predictable carries no information is fundamental to information theory, which is something that might not be so familiar to, to psychologists, but it's something that's it's fundamental to like all communication, how your phone works, how basically a lot of sort of modern engineering works. So I was talking with my wife today, and we were talking about how considering the protests and how suddenly the temperature has been sort of raised across the country and how sort of serious things are, the sort of crisis that we're in right now, all of a sudden, everyone's sort of forgotten all about COVID-19. <laughs> I find myself, I don't really think about it as much. Like I earlier was like, oh, well, I'm going to go out. Maybe I'll go grab some chips or something when we've been making a really serious effort to not go outside and to really limit our grocery runs. And what I was talking with her about was remembering back to when I took introductory physics in like undergrad and it blowing my mind to learn that it's not velocity that you feel. You have no ability to sense the velocity that you're moving at. What you can do is sense acceleration. So right now you're on a planet that's moving thousands of miles an hour or more. Honestly, I don't know. It's not my area. But but the thing is, right, is that you can be moving at whatever speed. It, you wouldn't notice it. What'll happen is as you accelerate, you're going to feel some change. There's going to, because of that change in velocity, you will feel the force of that. And so another way of stating that is that if things are remaining continuous from one moment to another, everything that you're experiencing is perfectly predictable and there's not information to be picked up from it. But if you're experiencing a change in velocity, then that's something that's unpredictable. That's something that is changing from moment to moment. It is something that needs to be encoded as information. So what we're saying when we're talking about information theory is something very similar, which is that you know, if you're staring at a white wall or you're staring at some stationary object, it would actually be really inefficient for your brain to be constantly telling you about what is sitting right in front of you and what hasn't changed. It would be inefficient for your brain to be just constantly encoding that. So what's actually much more efficient to do is to encode information when you encounter it. So if you shift your gaze you should encode and everything that wasn't able to be predicted. But the only time that you should be encoding information if you're staring at a stationary wall is if something on that wall suddenly moves. And in that case, there's prediction error, there's uh, some unexpected information, and there's something that's actually worth encoding. If our brains do work based on millions of predictions each day, then unpredictable events can take a heavy toll on our mental bandwidth. For example, no matter whether you agree or disagree with his political views, it's easy to agree that the current U.S. president, Donald Trump, is often unpredictable. So Doug and I were curious what impacts such behavior can have on our ever-predicting brains. There's two parts of prediction, right? So one part is the actual prediction that you're making, and the other is the precision on that prediction. Part of what we were arguing toward the end of the paper was that morals are maybe something that's predicted very precisely. You know, if I if someone holds a moral belief, if someone to take a really simple one, you know, like if someone's pro-choice, I would expect them to hold that and probably not fluctuate around a lot in their beliefs. If they suddenly flipped and were pro-life, you know, or anti-choice, however you want to say it, I'd be pretty surprised by that because I hold a pretty high precision prediction on people's moral beliefs. Preferences, though, I don't care enough to hold a very precise prediction about people's preferences. You know, unless it was something that was deeply, deeply core to who someone was, you know, in which case these boundaries start to blur a little bit of whether it's a preference or a value or, or what. But if someone all of a sudden usually got vanilla ice cream and then they choose something different one day, it's not going to completely blow my mind that that happened. 
And the idea that we're trying to explain with it is that that has to do with not having a high precision prediction in the first place. So what's interesting with Trump is that if he is the master of being consistently unpredictable, what that does is it tends to widen the precision of the predictions that you're going to make. Because you're used to constantly being surprised by every new and different thing that he's doing, the sort of range out of the way of how far he'd have to go to surprise you gets wider and wider because the precision in which you're going to make any prediction about him tends to get wider and wider with, with how erratic he's being. In a 2019 interview on the Freakonomics radio show and podcast, Brown University cognitive psychologist Stephen Sloman said that he believes that when you're changing your mind, you're doing one of two things. You're either disassociating yourself from your community, or you have to change the mind of the entire community. Ren and I ended our conversation with Jordan by asking for his thoughts on what it would take to change our minds about our morals. Honestly, if I'm put to it, I'd say that I don't think any of these sort of boundaries that we're drawing between like moral, non-moral, moral, conventional, you know, norms, I don't think there's a sort of solid line that you can draw between these things. So what you mean by moral might vary a lot by different circumstances. So if there's something correct in what we're trying to say, I think the core of it is that People have certain sorts of core beliefs or core understandings of the world that they do organize themselves around. And there would be probably certain things that you could do or things that you could, you know, beliefs that you have where if you stop believing those, you would probably need to renegotiate a lot of friendships that you have, like a lot of relationships that you have, a lot of your understanding of yourself. And I think that a certain amount of those are what you would probably call moral probably not all of them, but there's a certain number of them where it's like, if you were to really change on this one thing, a lot of relationships would have to change with it. So I remember talking to a friend of a friend at a party who was you know, very, very conservative. And I was trying to ask him about this. And he was saying that this was basically true, that in college, he was sort of liberal, you know, standard kind of Democrat liberal, or well, he he became he you know he decided that he's he'd rather be conservative. He decided that actually this is all wrong, you know. The things for him for it had to do with he didn't like the sort of sexual libertarian attitude in college, and he decided to become a conservative about it, you know, and adopted a lot of other conservative attitudes with that because that was he considered it sort of a package together, and had to break up with his girlfriend at the time. His relationship with his parents was very different. So at that point, like a very core sort of moral value in him changed and a whole lot of things around him had to change with it. And I think to some extent, we, we expect and kind of rely on people who we are very close with and close relationships to have some consistency for us to be able to, to sort of regulate our relationships with them. And if you lose that consistency, then it can be you know, it can be enough that you would probably rather break it off. And again, that's not morals a sort of proxy for saying what that is, but I think that you can probably identify some things in yourself that, that you just probably couldn't change without changing your life. That was Jordan Terrio discussing his article, Theory of Mind Network Activity is Associated with Metaethical Judgment and Item Analysis, which he published with Adam White's, Larissa Hyphens, and Leanne Young on April 29th, 2020 in the journal Neuropsychologica. 
You'll find a link to their paper at parsingscience.org e80, along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other materials that we discuss during the episode. If you like what you've been hearing, then head over to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you might get your podcasts, and subscribe to Parsing Science. And if you do already subscribe, consider leaving a review on iTunes. It's not only a great way for others to learn about the show, it's also a great way to help spread word of the work of scientists on it. Next time in episode 81 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Tim Taglarini from the University of California, Berkeley's Folklore Program about his research into how conspiracy theorists interpret and use what they believe is hidden knowledge to link multiple human interactions that are otherwise unlinked, and how, when one of these links is cut, they're less able to hold together a coherent story without it. You aren't going to associate democratic politics with casual dining and Satanism. It just, it's not going to happen, right? But the WikiLeaks dump allows you to make all of these connections. We hope that you'll join us again. 